Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Lord Jesus, uh, I, I pray more than anything that every Sunday as we arrive in our seats to listen to your word preached as we meditate on your truth. Lord, I pray for humility of our hearts and of our minds and all the ways in which we think we know and all the ways in which we think uh, we should know. Lord, I pray that... Um, I pray that what is hard and what is challenging to our hearts and our minds, Lord, Lord, we be conformed to the image of Jesus in all of it, and uh, that we would submit to your word above all. Lord, we love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, so as Daniel read, we're going to be in Romans 9 um, this morning. Actually, we're really going to be in all of Romans up to nine this morning. <laughs> so if you have your Bibles, you can open to Romans 1, because that's where we're probably going to start this morning. We will start, not probably. I wrote a sermon, I promise. We will be in Romans 1 to start. Um, <clears throat> so I grew up, when I grew up, uh, I loved sports. I still love sports. Um, I love watching basketball, I love football, um, baseball not so much, but I love sports. And growing up, I played a lot of sports with my family and my brother and my neighbors and my friends. And some of the first memories I have are of playing sports with my dad, uh, playing catch, shooting hoops with my brother and throwing a football with my, my neighbor. And I think one of the very first memories I ever have is sitting on the couch watching basketball and was watching Michael Jordan and the Bulls play the Utah Jazz in the 1998 NBA Finals. And one of the first memories I have of my personality is actually that moment too, because rather than rooting for Michael Jordan like all of my friends and everybody else, I had to be different. So I became a Utah Jazz fan, and that's turned out really well. They've made it to two finals and lost both of them to Michael Jordan. At any rate, there is a difference between eight-year-old me watching those games and being interested in it, and now 30-year-old me watching and playing the game of basketball that I love because I understand it. I understand the game. I know the rules inside and out. I can conceptualize strategy based on matchups or game script or time or score or all these different things. And if that means nothing to you, and you're not a sports person or you don't care, perfect. <laughs> because this analogy will work better. For those that have never been interested or cared or even watched a game of basketball, for those that have no idea of the rules, the strategy, or the nuance, imagine I asked you to come play basketball at the park this afternoon and dropped you in the middle of a game with five or six other people that knew it inside and out. Say so you showed up and tried to play. You'd be overwhelmed. You'd be uncomfortably out of place. You wouldn't know where to be, what to do, how to play. You would break all sorts of rules. You'd be lost. Now you put me in ice skates and put a hockey stick in my hand or any ice sport for that matter, and I'm, I'm there with you, I'm lost. See, there's a relationship between knowing a game or the game of basketball, understanding the rules and the strategies of the game, and playing and experiencing it for yourself even succeeding maybe, such is the relationship 
between knowing God and the doctrines of God and living a life that honors, pleases, and glorifies God. Trying to live a life as a Christian without knowing what God is like, without knowing who he is and who he wants us to be, is like trying to play a sport with no idea of the rules, what to do, or how to play. Conversely, there can be those, men and women, who are so consumed with doctrine and theology and truth, and yet give no thought or care to what it actually means to live that life. Like someone who, for whatever reason, buries their nose in the rule book of basketball, wants to know everything, but would never play or watch a game. Both are silly, and both problems litter the religious section and the Christian life section of bookstores today. And yet God would make no distinction between doctrine and living the life that pleases the Lord. You cannot have one without the other. And so the text we're in this morning is going to hold that tension between truth and doctrine and living a life that glorifies Jesus. And as you probably noticed in the reading, uh, we'll be, this will be a challenging text for both our hearts and our minds. We're going to be talking about the sovereignty of God this morning, specifically election, a God who chooses, a God who chooses some and not others, who has mercy on some and not others. But I say all of this at the beginning because it's so important that we frame our reading of Romans 9, our study, our meditation, our thoughts of it, our response to it. It's important we frame it as God would have us, not as some academic exercise or a hyper-practical self-help experience, but as the abiding word of God meant to pierce us to the heart and shape our life, meant to shape our emotions and our affections, to provoke our minds to know God more deeply as he has revealed himself to us, to produce faith in the gospel of Jesus, to produce repentance. This morning, we're gonna be reading about the doctrine of election and we're gonna see this as our main idea and our main theme. With the gospel in view, the doctrine of election is one of the Christian's greatest comforts and greatest confidences. With the gospel in view, the doctrine of election is one of the Christian's greatest comforts and greatest confidences. A bold and emphatic statement on a really challenging text. And fortunately for me, I'm not making this argument. Paul does. Paul's going to make this argument for us. And our foray into this murky topic isn't going to be totally typical as we would normally do here as we sit down and walk through Romans 9, 1 through 18, as Daniel read. We're going to spend roughly the first half of our sermon this morning in Romans 1 through 8, setting up everything that Paul sets up as he enters into this really challenging doctrine. And so tonight, we're going to see Paul's argument for the aforementioned statement in this order. We're going to see the glories of the gospel in Romans 1 through 8. That's chapters one through eight. I promise it won't be a three-hour lecture sermon. The second point is the broken heart of unbelief in Romans 9, verse one through five. And the final part of the sermon will be the comfort of election in Romans 9, six through 18. It's a hard task for us this morning, and a harder task is the context. It's so important with any text to understand the context. What comes before it, how did we get here? Because if we dropped right into Romans 9, it would not be hard to see a theological treatise on the doctrine of God's sovereignty and election. But if you read Romans 1 through 8, if it's framed as Paul frames it in a letter, 
Not only will Romans 9 make more sense, but it'll be far more affecting. And it will certainly not be a stodgy doctrine or truth that we're afraid to talk or think about. And as we begin, this sermon is actually a product of spending all of last year in Romans with GCF. We went through Romans 1 all the way to the end of the letter. And the sermon's a product of, of wrestling with that text with students and conversations and discipleship and with Paul and with Katie. This is us working through it together, the product. This is the product of that. And so they had, a, they had the benefit of walking from beginning to end, getting all of the context that we're going to try and capture this morning. And so really what we're going to do is we're going to take a 10,000-foot flyover of what Paul's accomplishing in Romans 1 through 8. And we're going to grab a couple of texts and the big themes, and we're going to try and trace that to how that shapes how we view chapter 9. And so with that, let us try the best we can to capture the beauty and glory of Romans 1 through 8. So Romans is a unique letter. It's unique in that Paul has never been to this church. Paul has never visited Rome as a believer. So he's writing this letter as someone who wants to visit Rome. Uh, there's men and women there that are they're helping shape the church, care for people and teach. And he calls them out specifically at times in the letter, but Paul's never been there. And so whereas a lot of Paul's other letters, he addresses specific issues inside of the church. He addresses specific theological arguments or he addresses specific sin struggles the church is having. But this, this letter, Romans, is wholly different in that it doesn't address specific doctrinal or polity issues. Instead, what Paul provides is a, gospel, a comprehensive gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome. The gospel that is the fulfillment to the Old Testament and the covenants, and the gospel that is fulfilling what is lacking in the paganism of a polytheistic Roman culture. Basically, it's the gospel. It's the most complete commentary and explanation of the gospel of Jesus in the whole of God's word is in Romans. And much of that richness, much of that glory is in chapters one through eight. And that's our first point this morning, contained on only eight chapters, the glories of the gospel. So as Paul opens his letters, he shares this longing to be with them, to go to Rome and to teach and care for and love them. And as he's telling them of his desire he writes this in chapter one of verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He says he wants to visit them, he wants to be with them, this Gentile city, this Gentile people, because God's gospel is not ethnocentric. God's gospel is for everybody. Through faith, Jesus is for everyone. And with that faith comes this beautiful shared righteousness with Jesus. A beautiful shared righteousness between two people, a warring people of, of the Jews and the Gentiles. Then it's verse 18 of chapter one. Paul's gonna spend the next couple of chapters talking about sin. Like he spends a lot of time talking about sin in Romans. And he spends several chapters talking about sin starting in verse 18. He talks about sin as a simple reality for everyone throughout all time whether under the Jewish law of Moses, our own conscience, or the judgments we place on other people that we never live up to ourselves. Culminating in three verses that highlight this ideal of, this ideal, this reality of sin. Sin is not an ideal. I did not say that. This reality of sin, two verse five. But because of your hard 
An impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God must judge the sinner to be just. 2 verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, both religious and not are accountable to God for sin. Then Romans 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is outside the bounds of God's righteous rule and all have sinned. But verse 23 continues. Read 23 again. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All throughout the first eight chapters of Romans, there are these two or three or four or five little chunks of verses that just give you the gospel. Paul does it like a number of times all throughout the entire book of Romans. And this is one of those moments, which is the gospel, sin, justification, redemption, faith, and glory in Jesus. The individual sinner, as we sit as sinners under judgment, whether religious or not, all have sinned and we stand condemned under God. And yet Jesus would step in front of us and receive what we deserved in the wrath of God. The wrath poured out on Jesus is the wrath that we deserved. Rather than God pouring it out on the sinner, Jesus steps in as a substitute, receiving the wrath as we sit in our filth and in our sin, thereby satisfying God's need for wrath in order to be just. Jesus sent by the Father planned in eternity past, knowing the weak and frail creatures that we are, sent Jesus, his own son, to stand and receive that pain and that suffering. And because of his grace through faith, merely faith, I can stand justified before God, not condemned. Moving forward to the rest of chapter three, all the way through chapter seven, Paul is gonna contrast this idea of faith and the law, faith and works, faith and earning righteousness before God. He's gonna describe faith in the context of Abraham for the Jewish people who cherished the Old Testament, who cherished the covenants and the patriarchs through the covenants and promises that God had made. And he specifically links faith to the fulfillment of that Old Testament promise. Look at chapter four, verses 13 through 17. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Unifying, once again, Jew and Gentile as one people, not of a law, but of a faith offered not to one people, but to all as faith. Abraham is not the father of one nation, but many nations through faith, unified not by blood or country, but by a savior. And through all of this comparing and contrasting of faith and law-keeping, demonstrating that faithful law-keeping, trying to uh, 
work as hard as possible to receive the covenants of God, to be as obedient and righteous is an impossibility. In other words, pleasing the Lord through obedience and worship under determination and conviction and strength would leave all broken, would leave all a broken failure before God. Time and time again in the Old Testament, God reveals this to us. And that even Abraham, the patriarch, one of the promise of the covenant was not justified before God because of his obedient law-keeping, but by his faith. Then we arrive at Romans chapter 8. After all the talk of faith and law-keeping and comparing and contrasting, we arrive at chapter 8. Personally, favorite chapters, the entire Bible. Opening with Romans 8, verse 1 through 4, he says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Another beautifully concise descriptor of the gospel Paul gives. Life offered in Jesus. Life, a relief from the self-righteousness of law-keeping and trying to earn a place before God. See, what the law in the flesh was unable to accomplish through a determined and yet failing faithfulness, Jesus himself would fulfill for his people where we or anyone would fail to stand, fail and stand condemned before God, Jesus stepped in that we might no longer stand under condemnation of our failed law-keeping, but might stand tall in new life, one not lived by or for ourselves, but by the Spirit of God. And with that new life comes the Spirit of God himself, the third member of the Trinity, to each and every believer that living in obedience and worship might actually be possible. Look at Romans 8, verses 9 and verse 11. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit of God himself is with each and every believer. God has given us himself to convict us of sin, to shape our affections, to help us live in a life that glorifies Jesus. Moreover, giving us a status before God that we never could have hoped to achieve on our own. Sonship. Sonship before God. Look at Romans 8, verse 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Adopted children of God himself. Adopted into the family of God to the point we call him father and not just father. But a title, Abba Father. 
That's the address that Jesus gave to God in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed before his death. It's an intimate, familial affection of a father and a son. A phrase that tries to capture in language something that cannot be described. An affection that we can't put words to. The love of a parent and a child. That is the love that every believer has in his or her relationship with the Lord. A love that we might call God Most High, Abba Father. But that love of Abba Father doesn't just end with a relationship, but extends to something bigger as well. Look at verse 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Not only do we get to call him Abba Father, but he bestows upon us his adopted children, the inheritance reserved for Jesus. This happens as Jesus dies in our place. You see, it wasn't just our filthy rags that Jesus, that was transferred when Jesus died. It was our filthy rags. Jesus took from us our filth, our gross, our sin, but as Jesus rose from death, he also gave us something. He gave us a righteousness so that as we stand before God, God looks at us and no longer sees the filthy rags. No longer does he see an empty nothingness. He sees the beautiful perfection of Jesus as he lived perfectly. The righteousness of Christ, which earns an inheritance that is now ours as adopted sons and daughters. Eternity to spend with him. Our Abba Father, with our brothers and sisters in the spirit. Paul closes chapter eight by talking about suffering and the goodness of God. Verse 18 and 19, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, after all of that, and we just grabbed like a couple of pieces, but after all of that, we just ran through that just scratches the surface. What is this present suffering, Paul asks? After the grace and salvation of God for all people, not just Jews. After sitting in sin and filth and deserving wrath and judgment and Jesus taking it. After Jesus stepping in to receive that wrath, after fulfilling the covenants in Jesus so that we don't have to be perfect law keepers, but rather have faith after justification, not by excellence and obedience, after being adopted as children of God into a relationship deeper than words can describe, and after receiving an inheritance that we didn't earn, what is suffering? What is trial and hard? When I've received more in the gospel of Jesus than I could ever earn in 10,000 lifetimes. And in the end, Paul gets to the goodness of God in Romans 8, verse 28 through 30. This is why we know. This is why suffering is not worth being compared. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers many adopted brothers and sisters. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, even in suffering, we can trust the Jesus that stood for us on the podium of our judgment. Even in suffering, I can know that God is good and I can be certain that God loves his people. No one and nothing can take that love away. Nothing can get in the way of the goodness and the mercy and the kindness and the adoption and the justification that God gives us. Nothing can get in the way of the love of God. Romans 8, 31, all the way through the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That frames Romans 9. Chapters 1 through 8 frames Romans 9. And again, that only scratches the surface. There's so much depth and joy and beauty and glory in the gospel of Jesus in that short eight chapters. (laughs) It's dizzying, and it should be. A beauty too grand for words, a gratefulness that we could never repay. That's what frames Romans 9. And I get that. I get all of that. You get that. You get all of that. Who are we to deserve such glories, such wonderful, beautiful things, such gifts? And then, as we all know as Christians, as believers, With those gifts, with that salvation, comes new eyes. New eyes to see what we couldn't see before. New hearts with an affection not only for our Savior and our Father, but a new heart for those around us. See, that is the offer that people, that people, that this offer to all people everywhere might not be missed by anyone, especially those we love. See, as a culture, I think we are, I don't think, I'm certain, we are deeply self-centered. Uh, we're selfish, specifically in the West and in our country. Uh, there's this deep-rooted tunnel vision uh, that the world, this deep-rooted tunnel vision of the world and reality that focuses solely on the individual, solely on ourselves. The world around us preaches to us the importance of you and being happy and being satisfied, wealthy, healthy, whatever you want or need. You don't have it, buy it. You can't buy it, here's something you can. All in the name of satisfaction, happiness, contentment, a culture discipling us on what we need to be happy. Whether that's a wart cream, a diet supplement, a travel experience, a strategy for wealth, or a hobby to invest our heart in. 
a consumerism constantly preaching, trying to deliver a stimulation that we might be satisfied and when we aren't, we are entertained and distracted. An insidious selfishness. And even if it's not me, and we mask that selfishness in love for our family, caring for, providing for, loving our kids, parents, and siblings, that's a really good thing. That's a wonderful thing. God tells us to care for those we love and for our families and for our neighbors. But as Tim Keller says, a good thing easily becomes a God thing. And often, in the initial arrival of longer hours, later nights, earlier mornings, is a desire to work hard, to give to our children and our family the life we didn't have, all that they need to flourish, the best education, healthiest food and lifestyle, an example of a virtue of work ethic. And yet our selfish hearts twist what is initially a good and sacrificial thing into a selfish and prideful one. We justify our hearts longer work hours so that we might buy more things and have more experiences. Somehow when God gave parents the responsibility to care for their children and protect them, I don't think he was thinking about independent wealth, early retirement, or the American dream. Greed, selfishness, and pride masquerading as care, work ethic, self-care, and self-help. That detour matters because as important as it is for us to frame Romans 9, it's important for us to frame ourselves. Our, how culture influences our priorities and how we think. And I think something beautiful has been happening over the last decade or so. The Western church has been on this journey of recovering from these insidious lies of selfishness where the first and the second greatest command of love the, God, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, that they're preached and taught and dissected and applied in our lives. It's stabbing at the heart of what has become a weak and corrupted American evangelicalism. But as that gospel is emphasized and as it takes root in the heart of churches and in Christians and in communities, that selfishness of thinking of ourselves first is assaulted with a love for neighbor that would serve and even sacrifice. Such is the heart of Paul as we arrive at Romans 9, chapter, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. A heart that would joyfully endure imprisonment beating, stoning, shipwrecks, spitting, mocking, all so that somebody else might get the adoption of Abba Father. Paul spends eight chapters philosophizing the realities of the gospel, mustering up all of the superlatives and affectionate language he can to just scratch the surface of what we have in Jesus. Finishing with this poetic beauty of God's impossibly perfect love that cannot be assaulted by anything. Only to be left with anguish and a broken heart. It's our second point this morning, the broken heart of unbelief. Let's read Romans 9, verse 1 through 5. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The reality for Paul was that the greatest glories in Romans 1 through 8, as he wrote it, as much as they taught and 
reminded him of who he is in Jesus and what he has in the gospel showed him how much his Jewish brothers and sisters were missing. Paul's kinsmen, according to the flesh, are those natural-born Jews that rejected Jesus and now persecute the church, who he used to be one of, the people he used to love and care for and be in community with. The very people now imprisoning and beating and mocking him. See, Paul's love was only matched. Paul's love for others was only matched by his love for Jesus. He loved his neighbor so much that his reaction to what chokes me up when I read Romans 1 through 8, his reaction was a deep and profound sadness for those, specifically as people, that would miss out on the calling of God, of calling him Abba Father. Look at verse 4. He's like, they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption. They're Israelites. They're, they're the people chosen by God. Chosen by God to bring blessing to the earth. To them belonged the adoption. They had Abba Father before any of us had Abba Father. The glory. That's the, the word there is referring to the Shekinah glory of God. The presence of God in the temple and in the tabernacle. God's very presence on earth was with his people, Israel. The covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Moses, David, Samuel. To them belong, uh, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Through them came Jesus. His people had it. They had it. Everything we have in Romans 1 through 8, his people had. And they rejected it. Look at the end of Romans 9, verse 30 through 33. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? He's talking about achieving righteousness through faith in Jesus. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They rejected Jesus and chose Barabbas. They rejected righteousness by faith in the Son and opted for righteousness by faith in themselves. And Paul is broken over it. Broken to the point that he would offer what none of us would offer. His own place as a co-heir with Christ. Look at Romans 9, 3 again. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I, no doubt Paul here had Moses' words in mind in his heart as he wrote this. See, after Moses came down from the mountain with the Lord and delivered to the people of God the, the law, he arrived to a people that had crafted for themselves a golden calf to worship as a substitute for the Lord. Moses was angry and broken. Moses returned to the presence of God on that mountain. In verse 32, 31, we see, 32, 31, and 32, we see this. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. 
if it were possible, Moses and Paul would welcome anathema if it would mean salvation for their people. They would welcome being cut off from Jesus, cut off from the inheritance if it meant salvation for their people. See, the joy of the gospel that pierces our dark hearts also provokes, should provoke an immense sadness and an overwhelming burden for those that we love whose hearts are absent the light of Jesus. That's the joy of the gospel pierced my heart at 20. And even as I went through chapters one through eight with GCF for a whole semester, I wasn't nearly as affected like Paul. I wasn't nearly as affected for the sake of others. I'm way too selfish for that. Then as we hit Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, and we start to consider the joy and the gifts of everything that came before. How could Paul not be in sorrow? How could we not be in sorrow? In anguish. As I thought of my family, as I think of my friends, old coworkers, even the random barista that makes my coffee on a Tuesday. A painful reality for every Christian is that there are those we love not sitting under the same grace and mercy and love that we are. And that should be painful. It's good that that's painful. And Paul himself is on his knees praying that God would rescue his people if it meant being accursed himself. First check here is, does our hearts groan like Paul? Second is, what do we do with that groaning? What do we tell ourselves or teach ourselves or preach to ourselves in that pain? How often do we consider the question, why me? That is how Paul arrives at the doctrine of election. It's our third point this morning, the comfort of election. This is what Paul, the doctrine of election is what Paul offers the Roman church, what he preaches to himself as broken hearts cherish what were freely given and yet lament those that have not received it in faith. This is what Paul says in Romans 9, verse 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had yet done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. See, Romans 9 is not a dissertation on the sovereignty of God. It isn't a textbook on election and exploring the theological and doctrinal implications of a sovereign God and yet a responsible people. It isn't a lecture on the relationship that exists between a God that is sovereign and a people that make decisions. It is an affectionate, impassioned plea to trust a sovereign Abba 
bother. It's a humble reassurance that the same God of Romans 1 through 8 is the same God with sovereignty over all the Jewish people. It's the same God of Romans 9. That the good father who is working every little good, every little molecule for the good of Paul, the omnipotent father whose love and care for him won't be moved by the height of a hurricane or the depth of an earthquake. The father who clothed him in an inheritance of righteousness that Jesus earned. The father who sent his only son Jesus to stand before the wrath of God, the wrath of the justice and the judgment of God so that Paul didn't have to. That father can be trusted certainly more than we give him and certainly more than ourselves. Too often we relegate theology and doctrine to books and Sunday school rooms and seminary classes. It's actually amidst the deepest suffering of this letter that Paul offers the most intellectually challenging and one of the most emotionally burdensome doctrines we encounter in the book of Romans. Election beginning with Jacob and Esau. Look at 10 through 13 again. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Before they were even born, God chose Jacob. Why? Well, certainly not because Jacob would be some awesome beacon of holiness and righteousness. Even his name doesn't even evoke confidence. In Genesis 25, we see the birth of these twin brothers. And as Esau arrives first, Jacob grabs his heel. And so they name him Jacob, which literally means grabber of heel. But colloquially, means dissenter or usurper. Deceiver. And that name would be proven appropriate as Jacob would steal like straight up heist his brother's inheritance. Again, I ask why? We get kind of an answer in Romans 9 verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Simply put, so that no one, certainly not Jacob, could claim any right to the grace of God. I mean, if anyone earned it, it was Esau. It was Esau who was working hard in the field for his, for his family that day, that his birthright was stolen from him. If there was anyone that earned God's favor, it was Esau. And so to demonstrate for all time that God's grace is greater than human effort, God chose to have mercy on Jacob, who would later be called Israel, the namesake of his people through whom an entire nation would be born. Yet again, Paul restates the doctrine of election in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. In Exodus 9, 16, God's people, Israel, they're enslaved in Egypt. 
And God sends Moses to rescue them, to warn Pharaoh that if he does not release God's people, he will send devastation and destruction upon Egypt. And yet what happens? God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why? Well, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. How many centuries later are we reading and retelling the events that happened with Egypt and the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea? As the church, what does the reading of this events in Egypt tell us about the relationship between God and his people? That nothing, not height, nor depth, nor powers, nor principalities will separate God's love, his people from God. Paul asks a final question in this chapter. Really, it's just another version of the same question we all ask whenever we arrive at this doctrine. Romans 9, verse 19 through 24. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, maybe Jacob, and one for dishonorable use, maybe Esau? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews also, but also from the Gentiles. His answer here is not an answer we're ever satisfied with. It's really a non-answer as far as we are concerned, that God is God and we are not. That his purposes in election and otherwise are not ours to determine or define. And yet, if there is an ad adequate answer for what God's purposes in election is, we see it in Romans 9, we see it most clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through the end of the chapter. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. God chose what is weak, what is foolish in this world to shame what is wise and strong. God did not choose winners. God did not see the great things that Jacob would do, that Abraham and Isaac would do, that David and Solomon would do. In fact, those are some of the most flawed characters in all of Scripture. Reading those stories reads like a daytime soap opera. These men were not winners. They were losers. And yet the good and wonderful and beautiful news is that God chooses losers. Deceivers and usurpers like Jacob, the weak and the foolish people, 
to magnify his grace and to demonstrate the infinite reach of his mercy and his kindness. He chose the likes of David and Jacob so that no one, not for a second, would believe that those gifts of the gospel in Romans 1 through 8 were given to anyone who deserves it. Rather, it's given to those that don't. As we arrive at the close of our sermon this morning, I realize that you may have many, many questions, many more questions than you got answers. I, so do I. And there's such a depth to mine here about God's sovereignty and about election and about a choosing God. How that fits with what we understand our responsibility to be. There's wonderful truth to be sought around it all, but none of that is the point or the purpose of the detour that Paul makes into the doctrine of election. The purpose is an affirmation of anguish over lost souls and an offer to comfort, an offer of comfort and hope amidst that anguish. So before we start asking all the brain-melting questions that we demand answers to, because it doesn't make sense, before we enter the debate stage with God's word on this issue, can't we just cherish that the God who elects, the same God who adopts, who we call Abba Father, who bestows upon his people an inheritance? The doctrine of election should not only shape the hardest questions we have about our faith, but with the glories of the gospel as its backdrop, the doctrine of election should, should be the greatest confidence of a weak and foolish people of losers. My hope that we walk away this morning not with frustration that Paul didn't answer all of those hard questions we have, but that our experience of adoption and justification and salvation and all the wonders and glories of the gospel would frame for us a view of election that makes it a glorious and wonderful and beautiful truth to be cherished. Not one for which excuses and arguments should be made. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I again ask for mercy and humility. <clears throat> in our foolishness and in our weakness, we presume the right to know all, to understand all, to grasp all, Father, I pray that the, the beautiful wonders of the gospel, of every gift and beautiful thing that you've given us in Jesus would be what moves our faith, not the uncertainties. Lord, I pray that we would celebrate a God that chose us. I pray that as we encounter this idea that our hearts would be stirred to worship and not doubt. Lord, we love you. We need the spirit of God that you've given us to convict, shape, and help us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.